Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon. And we are both attorneys for NFP, and we use this podcast to bring to you information related to employee benefits plans, sometimes the ACA, and oftentimes not. Today, we're going to hit on some uh, various uh, lawsuits that would be of interest to an employer, and specifically the an individual mandate or a, an employer mandate lawsuit. Um, but before we begin, I did want to give an update. Our last podcast, we discussed COBRA and some COBRA litigation, and there has actually been a change in a decision related to a case I discussed. I like updates, Suzanne. Yes, and, and it's nice that they um, come out with uh, uh, reversing a decision that I just speak about <laughs> <laughs> right. in Morehouse v. Steak and Shake. Um, it was a case in which an employee had sustained a work-related injury and had gone out on leave and began receiving workers' comp benefits. And when those payments terminated, she had to pay for the contributions, was unable to do so, and so her her coverage was terminated. They did not give her a COBRA notice or COBRA offering. And so um, at the lower court level, they had said that that change in payment did constitute a qualifying event under COBRA. Hmm. And so the Sixth Circuit came back and said it does not. It does not constitute a loss of coverage under COBRA. And so there was a change in that outcome. So wanted to clarify that before we get started. So Chase, turning to you now, let's talk about uh, litigation as it relates to the employer mandate. Yeah, so shifting gears to the ACA's employer mandate. Most employers are familiar with this one now, but it's a requirement for larger employers. That's 50 or more full-time employees, including equivalents, to identify and offer affordable coverage to their full-time employees. Importantly, under that rule, full-time means those employees who work 30 hours or more per week. Now, the mandate itself has been in effect since 2015, and um, this case actually goes back to around that time, maybe even just a slightly before, but some employers, in anticipation of the mandate's effective date, decided to preemptively act against the mandate by reducing employees' hours so that the employees would not be considered full-time. In other words, drop their hours to 28, 29 hours per week. Now you call them a part-time employee. You don't have to uh, incur the costs associated with offering coverage and the costs associated with making it affordable. That was one strategy that employers had. You just eliminate hours and then you track them closely to make sure employees stayed under that 30 hours a week threshold. One of these employers was Dave and Buster's, um, a restaurant chain. And back in 2013 and 2014, Dave and Buster's started reducing employees' hours under this strategy. Obviously, a company as big as Dave and Buster's couldn't just reduce hours for all employees. They have plenty of full-time employees that they did have to offer coverage to Think of the corporate employees, those that are you know keeping the business going, but they thought they could reduce some of their liability by reducing hours of employees who were hourly, maybe those that were working in the restaurant itself. Again, the idea for Dave & Buster's is that if the employee is working fewer than 30 hours per week, the employee will not be eligible for group health plan coverage. Now, Dave & Buster's must have also done some work to align their plan documents and the eligibility language with the ACA's employer mandate. Most larger employers do that now so that the two are consistent. Um, So putting your plan docs consistent, making them consistent with the ACA's employer mandate is a good idea. Um, But if my hours drop below 30, I'm a Dave & Buster's employee. I'm now ineligible for the Dave & Buster's group health plan. Uh, One employee, though, and perhaps with the assistance of an attorney, caught wind of this idea and filed a lawsuit. And the idea behind the lawsuit 
was that the employer was intentionally reducing hours so that employees who were previously eligible for and in most instances participating in the group health plan, they were no longer eligible. Okay, so let me let me jump in here. If we know that employers generally can dictate work schedules and they can certainly dictate eligibility terms of their employee benefit plan, obviously within the bounds of the law, what went wrong with the approach from Dave and Buster? Why could the employees actually file a lawsuit in this way? Yeah, it's an interesting question and we're going to get into it here. I agree with those statements. Employers do have quite a bit of flexibility in setting schedules at work. Those are employment law decisions. Uh, They can define positions as hourly versus salary. They can decide which schedules will be part-time versus full-time. They also have a lot of flexibility in designing their group health plan eligibility, particularly if they're self-insured. Most large, large employers have that self-insurance, and so they don't have to deal with restrictions that carriers often impose in the fully insured context. So there is that flexibility, but there's also this law out there that many are familiar with, this small little law called ERISA, (laughs) And usually we're talking about ERISA as it relates to planned documents, SPDs, Form 5500 filings in the past. Um, but one lesser known aspect is, is of ERISA is called ERISA 510. That's the section number of ERISA. ERISA 510 basically says that employers cannot intentionally take actions that uh, abridge, impair, or interfere with an employee's rights to collect or receive employee benefits. And I'm going to read the specific language from ERISA. It says, it shall be unlawful for any person, and that that really means employer, to discharge, fine, suspend, expel, discipline, or discriminate against a participant or beneficiary for exercising any right to which he or she is entitled under the provisions of an employee benefit plan subject to ERISA. This is a tricky one. It is a tricky one, right. The idea behind 510, though, if you're thinking about it from an employee perspective, Um, This is very helpful. You don't want your employer intentionally stepping in and treating you differently as an employee just because you are going to see the doctor, just because the employer has promised you benefits and you're using them. Uh, In a similar vein, you don't want your employer to be able to discipline or terminate you or otherwise treat you in a different way just because you've used benefits that are costing the employer money through the benefit plan. That's really a great protection for employees. That's one of the big reasons ERISA is in place to begin with, to ensure that employees are getting the benefits as promised from the employer and that there are no shenanigans going on or interference with those promised benefits, the employees getting what they're supposed to be getting. Yeah, which is important. So I, so obviously we, we love that, we support that, but it, it just still seems like I'd love to dig into further the employer's ability to have that flexibility with regard to how they design their plans. But on the other hand, this sounds like they're restricted um, and in their ability to interfere with uh, the rights of the employees. So how do you how do you mesh these two together? Right. So that's really the crux of the lawsuit that this employee brought against uh, Dave and Buster's. The lawsuit alleged that while the employer does have wide flexibility to define eligibility as they see f- fit, if the employer makes a decision that impacts the employees, and the sole purpose or reason behind that decision is to eliminate benefits for the employee then that could be a violation of ERISA 510. So in other words, if the only reason the employer is doing something is to get employees off the plan, then there's at least an ERISA 510 argument that could prohibit that decision. Uh, ERISA 510 could potentially support the complaint that the employer is interfering with the employee's rights to benefits. Now, in this case, it wasn't just one employee that was impacted. It was actually about 1,200 employees or former employees. So it ended up as a class action lawsuit. 
Again, the alleged complaint was that Dave and Buster's intentionally interfered with employees' rights uh, to benefits under 510. One key fact here was that prior to uh, Dave and Buster's decision to eliminate benefits by reducing hours, the employees were actually eligible for benefits. Mm. Most of them were enrolled in the Dave and Buster Group Health Plan. So the reduction in hours impacted that eligibility, and the employees lost benefits as a result. That does seem important. Yeah, it's a key factor here and something that can perhaps help with that dichotomy you just asked about. It wasn't the employer making a change to their overall eligibility terms of the plan. It was the employer making an employment decision to reduce hours with the intention of getting those employees who were previously eligible for or enrolled in the benefits off the plan, making them ineligible, causing a loss of benefits that they previously had. So it can be distinguished from an employer taking action to ensure that employees' hours are managed and monitored in order to prevent them from becoming eligible for the plan, and it can be distinguished from an employer making a change to eligibility for all employees. Right. That certainly does seem like a key distinction. So what did the court say? Yeah, so the lawsuit's been going uh, on for several years, and the court just recently approved a settlement in the case. It turned out, as I mentioned, there's 1,200 employees there. That's how it really turned into this class action. The court actually just approved a settlement in the case that happened over the last few weeks, in case you've seen this in the news. The settlement was for $7.425 million, which, after attorneys' fees and costs, is estimated at about $2,100 per employee. Importantly, Suzanne, the court did not come to a decision on whether 510 actually does create a problem in this scenario. They didn't yeah. answer that question. Which we would have, as attorneys, would have loved to see the legal analysis on that. So that's unfortunate. Yeah, it is a little unfortunate, um, but the settlement resolves the case, so we won't get a decision from the court in, in this case. Um, that 510 legal issue is still outstanding, and we'll have to wait for any other additional guidance or some other courts to take up uh, a similar case. Um, the only thing the court did was approve the settlement. Yeah, so it's obviously that's, that in itself is instructive, that it could, you know, there's there's obviously a basis for a lawsuit, so it wasn't thrown out, we know that much. Right. And they allowed it to continue. And so as a basis for a lawsuit, that's a substantial amount that they right. are, that they're paying. And so without, you know, but without the court decision, we can't look at that analysis and, and, and apply it directly to another situation. So what, uh, what can employers take away from this? Yeah, so like you just said, this is a clear warning flag, and this argument at least has legs, um, even if courts haven't officially decided it. But the main thing is that any attempt by employers to circumvent the ACA's employer mandate or the associated reporting should be heavily scrutinized by the employer and the ACA has its own rules that prohibit that circumvention. ERISA, obviously, here. Other laws could be out there. For example, HIPAA, um, the ADA could also um, come into play against employers that are trying to make decisions to get employees off the plan. Um, changes to employees' hours and schedules or other employment arrangements um, where group health plan eligibility is impacted, those should be scrutinized. Right. And uh, the risk is very much heightened if the employee is already participating, right? That was a distinguishing factor that we just mentioned. On a broader level, there's just the general idea that the employer mandate is still in effect. Right. We're still seeing the IRS out there sending letters, enforcing the mandate and the associated reporting. Uh, it's about time of year where employers have to complete 1095C, 1094C, get those into the IRS on time. The IRS is not messing around with that. No, unfortunately, we're, we're seeing a lot of those letters. Right. 
So on the note of reporting, we've been um, working with clients on new reporting requirements at the state level. Can you mm -hmm. touch on, on those issues? Absolutely. So in reaction to the ACA's individual mandate penalty going to $0 in 2019, several states stepped in and enacted their own state version of the individual mandate. Those require residents of that particular state to carry some level of coverage, usually minimum essential coverage or MEC, to pay a state tax penalty of some sort if they don't. Uh, like the federal individual mandate, individuals generally report in the following year. So we, we report our taxes for 2019 and 2020. Um, so that's how it's working with the individual mandates here. Several states' individual mandates took effect in 2019. So states are asking the individuals and employers to file reports in 2020 so that along with those individual state residents' tax returns, the state can enforce these individual mandates in the state. And are you seeing the forms um, consistent with the federal forms, or are they requiring their own state form? Yeah. For the most part, states are requiring 1095C, so okay. not a separate form here. That's good news. The employer is already uh, completing those, or at least hopefully they are, and so just taking the extra step to file it with the state. Okay, so what's uh, so the state? It's interesting because a lot of times, what the federal government's wanting to do with this information is gather data because mm -hmm. data is key in this in our world today. So the state could obviously use that employer information as well. How widespread is this? How many states are we talking about that are Im implementing an individual mandate? Yeah, so now it's for now it's not too widespread, but we anticipate more states doing this. But the two that I want to talk about first are New Jersey and Washington D.C. Those are two states, and we're calling D.C. a state for this purpose, uh, whose individual mandate took effect in 2019, meaning employers must report in 2020. Importantly, the employer reporting here is based on where the employee resides, not where they work. So for employers with New Jersey residents, they have to file 1095C by March 31st of this year. They'll file with the New Jersey Division of Taxation, which is where they should already be filing W-2s with the state. For employers with D.C. residents, they have to file 1095-C by June 30th of this year. Again, that goes through the D.C. Office of Tax and Revenue, so employers should be familiar with that. Several states have enacted individual mandates that take effect in 2020, which means the associated employer reporting would be in 2021. So nothing for employers to do this year, but those states include California, Vermont, and Rhode Island. A preliminary information for those states says it will also be 1095-C, but we'll have to wait for additional guidance and uh, to, to know the exact due dates. And, and obviously our, our favorite state, Massachusetts, that has had that in place for a while. Yes, exactly. So Massachusetts was really the original state here with an individual mandate going back to 2006 and Romney Care. The reporting obligations associated with that really went away with the ACA's employer mandate in reporting. But the individual mandate in Massachusetts never went away. And in 2018, they brought back what's called the HERD form, Health Insurance Responsibility Disclosure is that acronym. This is a single form that reports plan level information, such as eligibility, coverage level and tiers, contributions, cost sharing. So it's just one form. It's not employee by employee. One form, plan level information due by December 15th each year. Originally, that was November 30th, but the website is now saying December 15th. This applies to employers with six or more employees working in Massachusetts. They have to file that herd form each year through the Mass Tax Connect website. Not too difficult there, but definitely something for employers to be aware of if you have 
six or more employees in Massachusetts. Wow, so many states are jumping in. It doesn't surprise me because I think there is concern with that individual mandate going away. They want to try to bolster that and ensure that those individuals are still getting coverage. But this has been very helpful, and I love the discussion on the litigation as well. So um, as we like to say, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.